All right. So welcome to the, the second part uh, of the um, of the podcast today. So in this part, I'm going to interview a guest, and today we have Daniel Stride, who is um, from New Zealand, I believe. <laughs> and um, Daniel is a, a writer and blogger, um, Dunedin, and has a uh, has a really great blog, which um, I suppose I've been reading for a while now, um, and which we'll put in the show notes and various other places so make sure there's plenty of links to that um foolishfellow.wordpress.com and um so daniel you write about all sorts of things on there but of course there are quite a few talking topics yes yes <laughs> uh, um, talking talking as you can probably guess is a matter quite close to my heart i mean i you know it is a it is in fairness a very sort of generalized blog and i you know have very various other interests but um but yes um, Tolkien is up there. Yeah, fantastic. And um, as I said, there's quite a few, you know, really interesting and in-depth pieces which I've um, come across over the years, and um, you know, I found interesting and stimulating. So um, again, thanks for coming on. No, thank you. No worries. So I suppose to begin here, in the previous segment, my my co-host and me, and my co-host is in is in America, so um, time zones are a bit weird um, for now. But um, we were talking about the new uh, Amazon Prime show, and um, we don't have to spend too long on that. But of course, when they released the maps back in March last year, um, sort of revealing this the second age as the as the uh, setting of the show, um, I think you had predicted that, right? I, I think. Um. I, yeah, I'd, I'd actually made an interesting guess, basically because mm-hmm. they were drip feeding them three, seven, nine, one, um, apart yes, in yeah. accordance with the um, the ring verse. It was you know quite clever like that. But I did, however, notice that the names that they were using on the um, on the maps were, shall we say, not just not necessarily third age. There was no Arnor. There was no Gondor. Mm. Um, yeah, for sure. So. I, so I started, and the most interesting one, which I sort of latched onto, was there's a mountain right at the very end of the of uh, the Cape of Underast. So right at and sort of mm. south southwestern Gondor, right at the very end of the Cape, is a mountain called Rast Morthel. Yeah. The most interesting thing, because that was noticeable, because that was not part of the original Lord of the Rings published in nineteen published in the fifties. That only right. was added to the map in the 1980s with unfinished tales, which implied that they had the rights to unfinished or some sort of licensing rights to unfinished tales. Yes, yeah. Op- I mean, and the stories contain. If you look at the stories contained in unfinished tales, they're you know okay. You know, some of them uh, third age, for instance, Kirion uh, um, and and Il, um, yeah. um but there's quite a lot of set first and second age stuff. Now, clearly they they're not they, you know they weren't going for first age stuff because um, you know because um, that, that, that's far more alien. But um, second second age yeah. stuff, I could imagine, especially um, you know, as, especially if they were trying to go for shall we say something something a little bit darker without any hobbits. Yes, <laughs> yes, which seems to be um, well. I'm hoping it's, it's the direction they they go down. Um, and that sort of brings me to a, a recent development. <laughs> sort of with regards to the show and uh, again you know I, I'm not putting too much stock in this as a, as a story because I'm not sure really how well sourced it is but you know there was that recent um, brouhaha sort of about this notion of nudity in the show and whether or not that would sort of conform with um, 
with Tolkien sensibilities. And you wrote a piece, um, which is sort of what got me thinking to sort of have you on. Um, you wrote a piece about um, about this issue and sort of you know urged caution, I suppose, um, at least to an extent. So um, would you mind sort of, I suppose, just summarising or just discussing that a little bit? What, what was your view on that whole matter? Well, well I mean, first things first. I mean, you know, we shouldn't jump to conclusions. I think we should probably wait for a little bit more information yeah. to actually come out before, you know, before reaching for our torches and pitchforks. Um, essentially, <laughs> yes. my, my argument was twofold. I mean, firstly, with the, sexual, with the issue of sexuality in Tolkien, I mean, it, you know, it, it's not, you know, Tolkien obviously doesn't deal with it explicitly, but he certainly deals with it implicitly. And, uh, you know, if, if there, including an Albarian and Lorendus, you know, there's actually quite some, you know, some quite nuanced discussion on sexual matters by Tolkien. Um, yes. More broadly, however, the argument I was trying to address Essentially, there was the argument going around that Tolkien was trying to write a particular type of high fantasy, one which is very different from the sort of more earthy Game of Thrones style fantasy. And as such, for instance, um, I believe the commentator said that uh, Tol Tol Tolkien doesn't dis discuss things like fart or orgasm. And, right, yeah. And, yeah, and of course, yeah, that's true, he doesn't. On the other hand, my argument to that was... Um, if you actually look back at the even at the, uh, the modern fantasy genre as it existed before Tolkien, some of Tolkien's major influences, like William yes, Morris, yeah. um, who wrote very very high fantasy, um, there are you know there, there is a very frank discussion of sexual themes. Um, this notion that um, Tol Tolkien was that that Tolkien was extremely prudish and could you know could not bear to deal with that sort of thing. Um, I I, w I would disagree. You know, at, at least at least if you're arguing in terms of wider genre, um, yeah. Because you know, as I said, you know, the, high, the high fantasy genre can be many things, but uh, the idea that um, sexuality must inherently be pornographic strikes me as a little bit limiting. You know, it's it's almost as though you know, you know. Is, is Game of Thrones the only way of representing human sexual human themes? And I I, just, I don't think it is. Um, I mean, in fact, uh, although I don't explicitly mention it, one of the one of the illustrative pictures I actually used in that article was actually of the um, of the old Scottish ballad Tam Lynn, which of course right. was very high fantasy because you know it involved it involved elves and all the rest of it. Um, but of course, but you know, in, in, involves sort of very frank sexual things. Um, but, sure. uh, and of course, you know, e e and of course, the other, but the other thing, the other thing I would, however, bring up is is that nudity does, especially, well, especially in Tolkien, does not, you know, does not equate sexual, non-sexual nudity, of which there is plenty in Tolkien. Um, it, yeah. um, you know, can have very interesting and very powerful effects. I mean, for instance, you know, we've we've got Gandalf, who um, who is who is naked, who who on 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 the on the mountain peak after coming back to life, he only acquires clothes again after visiting Galadriel, and in a, his nudity there is symbolic of his rebirth. You have um, you have Frodo and Carathungol, um you know, he's been stripped naked by the orcs, and then Sam finds them. So you've got nudity as humiliation, and mm -hmm. you've got you've got various, you know, and you've got Nienor in the first age story, you know, and you, essentially she's 
you know, she, she's 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 very very innocent at that point because she's had her entire memory taken from her. She's she's become basically a blank slate. So yes, know, so yeah. Tol- Tolkien makes Tolkien makes some quite significant use of the um, Tolkien makes some quite significant use of um, of, <clears throat> of nude themes. So as such, sure. you know, jumping up and down and panicking that you know, <laughs> you know that we're going to have some, we're, we're going to have some sort of Game of Thrones in Middle Earth. Um, no, I, I, I mean we still might do, and you know that is a question. Yes, yeah. Thing, but uh, as far as I'm concerned, there's no particular reason why we should automatically jump to that conclusion. Yes, that's that's um, that's nicely said, and I, I tend to share that opinion. I'm also um, the the episode in uh, the Children of Hurin um, where uh, where Turin sort of strips Cyrus the elf and sort of runs after him is it is an odd and ambiguous little sequence but um uh that's brought to mind as well <laughs> as, as another sort of instance of um of nudity in, in tolkien and i suppose as you mentioned particularly the, the the sort of material around the second age stuff including of course eldarian and Arendis, is as you say if not explicit uh, certainly much more implicit i suppose in the in its discussions of, um, well, particularly between, of course, the two main characters, Eldarion and, and Arendus, but then also their daughter as well. And she grows up and inherits some of the um, opinions of her mother, but also some of the sensibilities of her father. And her sort of, that, that, unfortunately, that's part of the story, of course, that's um, comparatively underdeveloped. So, but um, perhaps in the show, they will they will look to some of that material. Um, as I said in the previous segment, we had I'd been talking with with my co-host with regards to this issue, and we'd been sort of discussing some some of the similar things that, that we've been talking about. And um, he's a bit less familiar with uh, with a lot of Tolkien stuff, so you know I'm the more sort of I'm, I'm perhaps more familiar with Tolkien. You know, he knows the Lord of the Rings. I think he read the Silmarillion, Silmarillion, um, you know, some time ago, but sort of have, doesn't sort of read it every year, sort of thing, like I I sometimes do. And my impression is that. Um, there's going to be a bit of a, well, potentially a challenge here uh, for the showrunners because, of course, the Lord of the Rings novel itself is so well known. And, and as you say, uh, although there is there are sort of nud- there are instances of nudity, non-sexual nudity in, in that particular book, certainly the sexual themes are, well, I, I would say anyway, they're, they're certainly um, not as prominent as they are in, say, Eldarion and Arendus or some of the first stage material. So, do you think that might be a problem with um, for the showrunner sort of communicating that not only is this not an adaptation of the Lord of the Rings novel, but you know we're going to actually bring things in from other parts of Tolkien's work that have a different, somewhat different sensibility to the Lord of the Rings? I mean, yes, yes. I mean, if if your audience goes in expecting, you know, expecting Shire and expecting the Shire and <laughs> fluffy hobbits, mm. you know, you know, jumping around drinking ale, then they're going to be disappointed. Um, that, I mean, it's perhaps worth remembering that the purpose that the hobbits actually serve in 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 the original hobbits and in the Lord <laughs> of the Rings, they are in very in, in a very real sense the audience surrogates. They're the characters that the audience, the the, the, the readers themselves, can identify with. You know, as, sure. as as a way of trying to make sense of this big and ultimately rather scary world. That's and that is that's arguably one issue that people have when they when they approach the Silmarillion. You know, quite apart from the extremely dense prose, um, yes. The issue with the Silmarillion is that there is no mediation between um, b- between the world and the reader. You're essentially dropped in the deep end. 
um, it, it, arguably in the second age, it perhaps wouldn't be so. It wouldn't. It wouldn't quite be so alien as the first, because essentially in the second age, you are you are still dealing with um, you are still dealing with you know recognizable places, or, or in, in some cases even recognizable people like uh, like Galadriel. Um, and 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 ultimately, you know, you That's are true, yeah. you are dealing with you are dealing with human beings. Well, okay, there are there are elves, you know, Kilabrumba and what have you. But you're in the second world, <laughs> dealing with with humans sure. with humans from the get go. And um, you know, okay, so you're basically dealing with dealing Aragorn's ancestors. And in that respect, you know, you can connect it back. Um, the first age, I would, you know, if they'd been doing the first age, I think that would be a much a much more significant jump. And um, yeah, they probably there might there might well have been some sort of need to sort of mediate between uh, between between that and what the audiences were expecting. But I, with the second age, I, with the second age, I think you'll um, you'll you'll see less of a you'll you'll see less you'll see less of an issue. It'll be less of a culture shock. Yes, for sure. Yeah, um, yeah. So no, that's going to be um, it's going to be interesting to see <laughs> sort of what they come up with and how much of um, how much of that material uh, they actually absorb into their into their writing, which um, I suppose brings me to to Eldarion and Arendus as a story, and we've um, we've already mentioned that a few times. Um, I suppose it is it is probably the major um, the major second age story, apart from perhaps the Akalabeth, the actual sort of fall of Numenor, which is of course in the Silmarillion, and there are various other um, bits and pieces um, in in various editions of, or various volumes of of the history of Middle Earth series. Um, not all of which I've read, <laughs> but um, you know I was rereading the story um, just recently in preparation for um, for the podcast, and probably in the next podcast I'm going to introduce it to my co-host and you know see what he thinks about it. But um, you know just thinking about the Second Age and, and this upcoming show and, uh, and things like that and, and issues of sort of sensibility, my my sense is that. Uh, you know, Eldarion and Arendus is a fairly important text, not only because it does deal implicitly with, um, you know, as we've already discussed, sexual relations, but, um, you know, for a number of reasons. What's what's your take on the on Eldarion and Arendus, I suppose, in a general uh, sense? Well, I mean, the funny thing is, it actually, it, you know, we've always got no idea at this point, but mm. I would actually be surprised if... Um, if, if only for timeline reasons that it, that that actually appears in the actual adaptation, mm. simply because yeah. apart from the, the bit at the very end when it turns out that Aldarion was actually helping Gilgalad against Sauron, it's a, yes. it's a very domestic drama, in in that mm. respect that although it's although you can see the seeds for what comes later, um, as, you know in terms of Numenorean involvement in Middle Earth. And um, sort of yeah, potentially Numenorean hunger for more land and more territory. It's very much it's very much a Tolkienian character study, which makes it a very very unusual text. It's perhaps yes. the only it's perhaps the only sort of um, Tolkienian story that I think would, would might you know might actually shine as a stage play. Oh, that's interesting, right? Um, in terms of, in terms of, you know, generally speaking, with Tolkien, I don't think his, his work, as Tolkien himself noted, his works are fundamentally unsuited to drama. Um, hmm. Aldalian and Arendus, though, on the other hand, you know, you can almost imagine that as as something that Shakespeare himself could have come up with. Well, not not, not so much the language, but uh, <laughs> in terms yes, of yes. in terms of the uh, the character studies situation. Because, 
Mm. I mean, ultimately, you know, in terms of, and the other thing is, as um, as a study of marriage in a Tolkienian story, it is of course unique as a as a um, as a study of of a marriage gone wrong. Now, Aldarion isn't the worst husband in the in the Tolkienian canon, but he's he's the worst within normal parameters. So, I mean, he, he, yeah. he, he's not someone like Aeol or Arfalazern or you know or you know or that sort of abusive arsehole. He's he's simply neglected, and um, and that of course has severe consequences further down the line. Um, the other thing, of course, I would I, I would note about that particular story is that is that Tolkien does tie it back to his wider issue of what ultimately brought down Numenor is the comparative lifespan differential between mm-hmm. um, between between Eldalion and Elendis. Eldalion lives significantly longer than she does. You know, she has mm-hmm. a biological clock ticking. In that respect in that respect, um Numenor is the closest we can really, you know, it's the closest, you know, the closest mortal realm to um, to Valinor, to the elves, and <clears throat> it essentially, it's essentially, a, it's essentially a, almost a half-assed compromise in some respects. You're sort, you know, you're sort of trying to human <laughs> being yeah. halfway to being elves, and as this particular story shows, that still doesn't work, even if you give human yeah. beings. <laughs> You know, centuries and centuries and centuries, it's still causing mm. problems. Yes, yes, and I've always thought that. Uh, well, I've always, uh, I, I suppose, well, yeah. I mean, uh, reading the Akalabeth, for example, which is the um, for listeners who who you know, may not know, although you probably do know if you listen to this podcast, it's the story, um, the, the penultimate um, uh, sort of part, I suppose, of the Silmarillion volume or chapter, um, which deals with the, the downfall of. Uh, of the Numenorean kingdom, uh, which of course involves sort of human resentment towards the elves um, for their immortality, which is stoked by Sauron, um, who through various you know nefarious machinations um, comes to um, have a lot of power over their king, uh, to hold a lot of power over their king, um, Arpharazon. But um, I've always sort of thought that the Numenoreans kind of had a point in that story, and I think Eldarion and Arendis, um Kind of dramatizes that, or at least uh, you know the beginnings of that conflict, as you say. Oh, oh yes, I, I really, I really think it does. Um, and I mean, my, my you know, although no, nobody in that particular story is is you know is you know morally you know morally right, you know, all all all, all of them have their flaws. It's um, you, you know, you're you're dealing with multiple different shades of grey here. Um, my sympathy at the in the relationship level, I definitely feel much much more sorry for Arendis than I do for Eldarion. Um, I, yes, <laughs> I, I ultimately see him as the you know, and his his refusal to accept his responsibilities as um, as the major driving force here. That said, though, I I quickly lose my sympathy for Arendis given how she raises the child, um, a because you know, it's one thing to hate your spouse. It's quite another to, it's quite another to psychologically, basically psychologically abuse your daughter abuse, yes. as, as revenge or as revenge on your spouse. She really projects a lot of that resentment, doesn't she, and onto her daughter, and then her daughter sort of. Well, the, the story seems to imply that her daughter is quite savvy, or Ancalma, is quite savvy, and sort of um, comes to take that takes that on, um, but also sort of understands. 
um, you know, what, what, what horrendous uh, sort of has gone through it and is suffering and uses that to her advantage. Um, but as I say, I mean, that, that part of the story is, is uh, unfortunately um, the least sort of developed of, um, of, of the, well, I suppose it would become a novel, you know, where it finished. Mm-hmm. Um, and it would have been, I think it's perhaps with, with uh, the fall of Gondolin sort of 1950s uh, rewrite, uh, it's perhaps one of the, the saddest sort of um, missed opportunities. Oh, yeah. <laughs> had told me a little bit longer. Yeah. <laughs> it would have been fun. I mean, um, we, I, I, as far as I know, the evidence for the type for the for when um, Aldali and Anderlendis was written, we know it was written <clears> by 1965 because Tolkien references it's in a letter. Um, yes. Yep. So it would have been written perhaps in the perhaps in the late 50s, early 60s. Yes, yeah. There seems to have been a sort of a an efflorescence of creativity during that that period, sort of with the the, the children of her and material, um, the all of Gondolin story, which was only written up to the point where um, Tuor, of course, sort of comes through the mountains and sees the city in the snow, and then um, Eldarion and Arendus. And it seems to me that he sort of develops this very terse. Um, Terse style that that's obviously informed by his writing, The Lord of the Rings, but it's it's even more sort of economical, and it's um, mm. at least it seems to me. And it, it often, um, for example, in the Children of Hurin, it, it, it can sort of create sort of deep um, poignancy. I think so. It's, it's sort of it's unfortunate that um, yeah, that he sort of didn't didn't finish a lot of those stories, but. But we, you know, we go with what we what we have, I suppose. <laughs> oh yes, yes, yes. Um, yeah. So I suppose, um, as I say, I'll, I'm going to. Well, it'll be interesting to see what my uh, what my co-host thinks about that next time, um, because I, I don't think he's uh, he's yet read read the story. So that'll be a, a fun discussion. But um, I suppose just just moving moving along a bit, um, a few of your articles. Um, or a few of the articles you've written on your blog have been concerned with, um, I suppose, the, uh, the tension between the Christian and the pagan in Tolkien yeah. and um, how these two things interact. And, um, you know, a lot of yeah, a lot of your writing on that, as I said, is it's just really insightful. So I suppose I'd be interested to to hear your your take on, on this, you know, enormous issue in Tolkien's sort of reception and scholarship, uh, which I suppose remains fairly sort of unresolved perhaps um so i suppose do, do, do you think that tolkien's christianity really ever coheres with with his love of paganism or to, to different works emphasize different aspects or well i mean know, how do you think I, about that? I um i actually rather get the impression that um Tol- tolkien himself he, he I, I i don't think he necessarily saw them as being at odds i i, I think he could see mm-hmm. them as being as being to some degree reconcilable that um, perhaps there was, shall we say, some sort of um, glimpse, glimmer of eternal truth in these older pagan traditions. Um, yes. I mean, I mean, in fact, um, not so much Tolkien, but I'm actually thinking of C.S. Lewis, his very close. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. C.S. Lewis actually came up with a, um, a description of Neoplatonism, which was the last great pagan philosophical mm-hmm. movement. Um, mm-hmm. Of the of the third and fourth third fourth and onward centuries, neo neo yes. by the way, heavily influenced the development of Christianity by Saint Augustine and other thinkers. But mm-hmm. um, 
Lewis's description of it was that Neoplatonism was essentially a great tidal wave taking in all the debris of the classical era, so Plato, Aristotle, Stoics, the lot, turning into yes. one vast wave that rolls in land with, with one last gasp of fury before retreating out to sea. And as Lewis said, uh, 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 the, the water left behind by that wave in the Western <clears throat> consciousness took a very long time to drain away, and in some cases has never quite evaporated. <clears throat> so I think, and I think arguably that's that sort of interpretation I tend to put on Tolkien that um, that yes, while of course he was you know a thoroughly devout Catholic, I think he also I think you know I think I think he also sort of had a had an appreciation that these older stories were worth yes. preserving as were worth preserving in their own right. I mean, it's an interesting yes. it's an interesting quandary that um, Tolkien, I believe, actually wrote an essay on 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 uh, one, one of his talk when he's one of his um, references to Beowulf, the the poem that studied mm -hmm. academically. Now, if you yes. actually read Beowulf, you realise, of course, that it's being transcribed by a Christian monk. You know, there's you know yes, various, yeah. various um, anachronistic Christian references. So the question is, <laughs> yes. uh, why is a Christian monk in the in the Middle Ages preserving <laughs> the ancient pagan manuscripts? And if, and essentially, Tolkien's conclusion was that he was that the poet was trying to reach a sort of synthesis um, <laughs> between um, but, you know between preserving the old laws of the old law of one people of one's people, which is what Beowulf is it, where Beowulf was, versus. Yes. Um, um, you know, versus potentially getting in trouble by sort of, you know, by, you know, actually sort of, you know, writing about pagan themes. So, so in that mm -hmm. sense, you know, you, you look, you look at Beowulf and you do actually kind of see a sort of pagan, pagan Christian synthesis. In fact, um, yes. and, you know, and, you know, and the Beowulf poet was not alone in that respect. I mean, um, you, 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 you see some of the stuff that comes out of the editors. Um, you yeah. know, there's various sort of anachronistic Christian references in there. And also in Irish, in Irish myth, actually, the that that which I have been reading quite a lot of recently, that unfortunately is a lot clunkier. Um, the, the the attempted fusion of, um, of of pagan and Christian material didn't didn't go as smoothly as with the other examples. But, that, that that was that was for me anyway. Is what, what I am, what I am, you know, what I I mean, I don't know for certain, obviously. But, you know, it's what I kind of visualise Tolkien as, you know, is kind of trying to do. For sure. And you mentioned Lewis there. Um, I haven't read much of Lewis, although I have read, um, I think, his final novel, Till We Have Faces, which um, I thoroughly enjoyed, but which seems to be um, rather sort of undervalued, uh, at least even by Lewis scholars. I, I don't hear it talked about very much, but I thought it was um, quite extraordinary. Um, do you think Lewis... Uh, sort of is engaged in a similar project in some of his fiction, um, or is he? Um, and again, I, I haven't read much of his fiction, but or, or is he? Uh, you know, doing something different. Um, obviously, he's sort of famous for allegorizing Christianity in the Narnia books, um, and you know, I'm not sure exactly how that might relate to to paganism. But as you as you say, obviously, Lewis was was a scholar of. Um, you know, amongst other things, classical um, literature. So, I don't know. I don't, I'm not sure if you've read Lewis quite quite as much as Tolkien, but um, yeah. Do you think they're com um, comparable there? Or? 
Well, I mean, Lois, Lois obviously is much, much more overt with his handling <clears throat> of religious themes in a way that um, Tolkien himself seems, seems to. I mean, with, with, with Tolkien, the religion is always implicit. Um, um, in fact, one of Tolkien's letters actually says um, says he was always quite chuffed to um, to just to he, to have have it described to him by a correspondent that um, that essentially it was his religion in his in his work was like was was like a lamp was like a lamp sh- you know shining out you you could see the effects of it but you couldn't actually see the see the source of it itself. Whereas Lewis, right, on the yeah. other hand, is much more is you know is much more overt. It's not actually just Narnia either. If you've ever mm. read his, um, Lewis, Lewis actually wrote a, a space travel trilogy. Yes, right. Um, yes, I haven't actually, read it. But, yeah. Famously started off with Out of the Silent Planet. Um, mm-hmm. Yes, that that incorporates some quite significant religious themes as well. Um, the other, right. in terms of the other um, Lewis work, which I would actually recommend checking out. It's actually a non-fiction piece that's called The Discarded Image. I, think, I believe it was actually the very last book of all. And it was essentially, right. a, yes. it was essentially a book on the medieval world view of yes. um, yeah. essentially compare, you know, saying that you know, here's he he is the way the, these people thought about, um, thought about their role in the world. And mm-hmm. he's, also, he's always very adamant that um, the medieval world view didn't like throwing things away. They they didn't like you know they they like synthesis if they found multiple because you know, of course you know, from their point of view if something is an on, if something if something is in an old treasured book then mm-hmm. it must be worthwhile to some degree so let's use yes. building material it can combine that with someone else's ideas and try try to try to reach synthesis whereas the more modern viewpoint is well you know this. This writer was wrong about it. You know, chuck that out. We'll chuck them out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, yeah. That, that that's one um, I need to check out. Actually, um, I think I have it somewhere on my bookshelf, but but need to get into it. Um, yeah, that, that's interesting. I I feel like perhaps I should um, I should read more of Lewis and uh, you know, inc- including some of his fiction and perhaps the space trilogy because I have I have heard quite a bit about it and people seem seem in general to. Um, to enjoy it, so yes, yeah, um, it's, it's, it's actually quite funny because Tolkien himself, of course, is famous famously did not like Narnia. Um, <laughs> yes, yes. Though I, know, I mean, there's potentially many reasons why. You know, of course, you know, quite apart from the overtness of the uh, overtness of the religion, I also rather get the impression Tolkien didn't like Lewis's very haphazard <clears throat> jumbled together style of world building. Because I mean, yes. you look at Narnia, and it's got you know, it's got naiads and dryads, it's got it's got yes. giants, it's got you know, Celtic influences all jumbled together plus Santa Claus. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yes, that's you know that that sort of that sort of thing would drive Tolkien nuts. Um, <laughs> but um, mm. but yes, yes. Um, and uh, funny thing is, Tolkien also didn't like. Um, um, the, the the third and final book of the space trilogy, that hideous stream, mm-hmm. Tolkien yes. referred to it as that hideous book. Oh wow! <laughs> so uh, he, he didn't he didn't like that one either. No, no. And um, my understanding is also um, he wasn't too fond of um, uh, other science fiction like Dune as well. I I, I was reading recently that yes, yes, was quite um... yeah. I, he, he didn't like Dune. However, we we do know we do know he liked Isaac Asimov. 
Oh, okay, right. That's interesting. Yes. Ah. Yeah, I'm quite a fan of, well, I, I used to be a fan of Asimov. I haven't read, read his stuff for a while, but um, I think there is a um, there is also an adaptation coming up. Um, the uh, the Empire books, I, I think, which should be interesting. Um, I suppose just to um, just to finish up here in in, in the first segment of, of this podcast, um, uh, my co-host and I were discussing sort of fantasy, modern fantasy in a general sense. So, uh, Razid, my co-host, is, is more of the fantasy reader than I am. I don't I like Tolkien, but I don't tend to read much modern fantasy, and he's much more read in, or much more well read in, uh, you know, George R. R. Martin and, um, and various other writers. So, I suppose. Um, just just a final question on Tolkien's legacy. What do you see? And obviously, again, it depends in part on how the show goes, I suppose, that's coming up on Amazon. But um, how do you see Tolkien's legacy going into the future? Now, you know, the fantasy genre is transforming and changing. Um, there's all sorts of new subgenres, urban fantasy and things. Um, but, um, you know, Tolkien seems to be at least, you know, um, anecdotally seems to be as popular as, as ever. Um, how do you see his legacy sort of going forward? Well, I mean, given that Tolkien, you know, given that you know as Tolkien's been dead for almost half a century, and the fact that you know mm. books are mm-hmm. as popular as ever, I think we conclude that you know in that you know in twenty fifty, pe- people will still be reading and talking about Lord of the Rings and the associated material. Um, I, you know, in twenty fifty, I have no idea if people will be going on about Game of Thrones. Um, but, <laughs> yes. In that respect, you know, Tolkien has already already stood the test of time. I mean, it's also it is important to remember, you know, Tolkien did, did not invent the fantasy genre. You know, the fantasy mm, genre, yes. you know, even epic fantasy, existed before Tolkien. Um, yes. Um, it, it's just Tolkien. Tolkien defined the genre in a in a way that few other few other um, you know literary genres have have that sort of one author simply def, <clears throat> defines it. Um, Without Tolkien, you know, without Tolkien, um, it's very likely that um, it, it's, it's very likely that we, we would not have had such an enormous um, emphasis on secondary world building, on the notion of the inven- on the, in- the the notion of the invented standalone world was something Tolkien popularised, and yes. also to some degree Tolkien. Um, Tolkien separated out because before Tolkien, it was also, and indeed for quite a while afterwards, there was a heavy overlap of fantasy and science fiction. Um, I mean, someone like Edgar Rice Burroughs, John Carter of Mars. I mean, yes, it's science fiction, but if you, but you know, it could legitimately also be called fantasy. In some respects, <laughs> Tolkien, Tolkien separated out the genres in a way that, um, in a way that people, uh, people previously couldn't have imagined. I mean, it's entirely possible that you know further down the line we might have another very, very influential, um, influential text. But um, for for now, I think um, um, for now, I mean, certainly for, for the um, from about the late nineties through to probably about five or six years ago, there was quite a lot of emphasis. I th- I thought on. On, fa- on the fantasy genre, trying to steer clear of Tolkien's shadow. I mean, this was, you know, grim, the grim dark movement became quite <laughs> yeah. popular. Um, where, mm. to be honest, I always rather 
thought it was rather missing the point. I mean, Tolkien himself <clears throat> is a very, very dark author. It's just, um, it, it's just, you know, um, you, you've, you've got to actually, you've got to appreciate that, um, you know, appreciate what's going on beneath the surface. Um, however, yes. you know, in the past five or six years, though, I think there has been something of a, of a sort of a counter backlash against, uh, against that sort of grim dark, um, uh, no, I mean that's that's just the sentiment I get. Um, but, I feel uh, that as well. Yeah. But um, you know, but I mean, pe people are aware that you know Tol that you know obviously that Tolkien exists. Um, it's, just, <laughs> yes. um, it's just yes, you've 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 got. I I am, however, um, you know, regard regardless of um, of what one thinks of of Game of Thrones. I do, however, like a like a a, a particular line from um, George R. R. Martin, who basically said, "You know, one should not tread on the master's heels," <laughs> which, right, which, yes, which is a sentiment I agree with. You know, as as much as you know, as much as I like Tolkien, you know, whenever whenever I try my hand at writing, you know, I make a point of you know steering quite clear of you know of you know most <laughs> sort of setting. Right. Yes. No. That's fair enough. Well. Um... Look, I think that's a nice place to uh, to draw the conversation to an end. So, again, I want to thank you for uh, coming on and, and discussing uh, Tolkien and Eldarion and Arendus and, and, and various other uh, topics. Um, just to, to close out here, uh, I suppose where, where can people sort of find you if they want to read your work? I mean, obviously, I've, I've sort of already mentioned your blog, but um, are you on Twitter or other places? Uh, yes, yes, I, I am. Um... I'm 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 Twitter at FTRDA two two one. Um, right. right. So yeah. Yep. Um, so right. yeah, but uh, a a foolish fellow. So P H U U L ish fellow. <laughs> and um, <laughs> um, uh, so yes, uh, as I said, you know. Um, so yeah, I, I I'm probably better known as a blogger than I am as a writer a writer in my own right. Which um, right. Yes. It's interesting, but you know, such is life. <laughs> but, <laughs> yes. Um, well, I hope yeah. people. Have a look at your blog. They also, you know, um, have a look at some of your writing as well. Um, and uh, you know, perhaps if, if if you come on again sometime, I'll, I'll ask you about that in more detail. Um, but uh, we'll, we'll certainly put links to the blog, um, sort of in the show notes and um, you know wherever it's linked. Um, so you know, we'll, we'll make sure that that gets out there. And um, yeah, thank you again. Okay, thank you very much.